0: Welcome to the doxology podcast my name is jens nelson and my name is lucas stock yes this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the christian faith we thank you for joining us as we explore discuss and grow as followers of christ so lucas it is may 10th <laughs> uh, yes sir and i look out my window uh and there is white stuff falling from the sky it is not ash It is not, um, confetti, but it is snow. Um, I don't really know what to think about this, especially since last Sunday was like almost 80 degrees. Uh, (laughs) what is the world coming to? We have murder hornets. Uh, we have, um, COVID-19. It seems like we're being pressed on all sides now. Yeah. Uh, What, what is a Christian to do? I'm not really sure. Um, maybe we should, as you mentioned earlier, just talk about obscure theology all day and, uh rest in the all sufficient goodness of our lord and savior instead of getting bent out of shape about the smallest things.
1: Yeah, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if my approach is resting in the goodness of Christ or just trying to distract myself and avoid all the problems <laughs> around me, but either way, I think it's fun to do this instead of scrolling Twitter and watching people complain about I mean, literally anything like there's right. always something to complain about. And I get it. You know, sometimes we, we should complain about some things, um, but maybe not always on Twitter. I don't know. I don't know. That's my like ice cold take of the week is, <laughs> is Twitter complaints <sighs> are annoying. <laughs> yep. And uh, what does it
0: actually accomplish? Whose mind is ever changed? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so uh, Lucas today, as we said, it's Sunday. We typically record on a Sunday. Um we're going to be jumping right into this topic. We won't belabor the point any longer. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about theosis, or as you like to call it, Ooh. Uh,
1: deification or divinization yeah. or theosis, right. depending on your preference. Um, I think for simplicity, uh, you know, theosis is, is sort of the Greek, you know, the term that comes from the Greek for this idea. There's some other I, other Greek terms as well but I think for simplicity you know maybe let's call it deification uh, going forward just I think it does a pretty good job of capturing a little bit of the idea behind sort of what this doctrine um, really is all about Um, and well
0: these three words sound a little foreign especially if you grew up in many of the circles that you know we found ourselves in as kids so you know, these words might sound kind of kooky. Can you maybe go into uh, maybe a definition and explain what you mean?
1: Yeah. And one thing that I that I want to lead off with is that this idea, which, you know, I'll explain here in a second, um, of deification, of theosis, is is actually um, pretty much as old as Christianity itself is. Um, it might not be one so of those... So that's like 15 years or so? give or take? It depends on when your denomination started or when your church was okay. founded. But but yeah. Mm, got it. Um, <laughs> um, You know, particularly being American, modern, you know, 21st century Protestants, you know, there are lots of doctrines that tend to, you know, get talked about a lot. You know, I think of justification. I think of um, maybe depending sanctification or, or you know, talking about, Uh, different aspects of Jesus and, you know, like the, the way that we, you know, want to frame our conversations. There, there are some like Christianese type, you know, theological jargon words that get thrown around a lot. And I don't think, you know, like you kind of alluded to deification, theosis, divinization, it's not one of them, but that's not because it's something new or something you know, that we should be avoiding as much as it's just something that we haven't talked about. And one of the things I wanted to accomplish today is sort of give a little bit of a of a view of why I think we should reclaim it and why I think we should um not be worried about it or not be avoidant of it. So without further ado, um basically to put it in Western terms, um, it's it's the doc it's a doctrine of salvation that kind of encompasses, you know, a little bit of both justification and sanctification. So usually, you know, in sort of the, the typical, you know, reformed type, Ordo Salutis, um, and that's, that's little r, reformed, you know, like pretty much. What is much, Ordo salutis? Um, the the order of salvation is sort of the way i remember learning it um sort of the different it's sort of like a logical order
0: like it's not necessarily right. like you're in this step now you're in this step now you're in this step it's sort of like the natural logical progression mm-hmm. of of salvation
1: right so we think of the parts of you know if we kind of take our salvation experience and break it into different parts um we might think of justification you know sort of that legal um You know, probably if you're a Protestant, that one-time event where you are made just, you are made right before God, you are declared righteous, Um, and then sanctification, sort of that ongoing work of the Spirit in the Christian's life of discipleship where we are more and more being sanctified, being set apart, being conformed more and more to Christ's image, as Paul says in Romans, Um, you know, pointing towards and eventually culminating in the end time when we ascend into heaven and and we are glorified forever in eternity. That's sort of, you know, breaking those pieces up into different, different things, um, different, you know, sections of salvation, I guess we could say, or different, different parts of salvation that we can sort of talk about separately. Um, theosis de- deification, we, we can kind of think of it more or less corresponding to the idea of justification and sanctification. So, Another way of saying that um, it's it's a process of sanctification of Christians whereby they become progressively conformed to God, a, con- a conformation that is ultimately demonstrated in the transfiguration of the just in the heavenly kingdom. Um, so this, this is sort of what it corresponds to. Um, the way that I like to talk about um, deification is... In a quote, a pretty well-known quote from Saint Athanasius the Great. I believe he was the originator of this quote. Um, he became... What do you have to do to like get that title of the Great? Like,
0: what is it? Like, wh- mm-hmm. what if it, we have Lucas the Great and Jen's the Great? Like, what do we have to do to reach that status?
1: I believe in the Eastern Church, it, there's actually a, like a specific um, like the titles they get. Like, like there's there's this guy named like uh, Saint Simeon the Theologian. And like to be, uh, to be the theologian is like you have to. There are specific, um, okay. reasons or like Maximus the Confessor. To be a confessor means like you. I think you have to be martyred or you have to be, um, persecuted or, or and you know hold fast or I don't know. But I think there are specific guidelines. So we could probably do some research. I don't know if you if you know any Orthodox priests in your area. Maybe you could ask them. They might know. Oh yeah, the guy that lives next door. Um. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So. <laughs> uh he became man so so he meaning meaning god or specifically christ the second person of the trinity he became man that we might become god is is the sort of classic formulation of this doctrine that we might become god so right here i think immediately is where we see some of the reasons this isn't always even when people do talk about it here in you know western protestantism maybe it feels a little funky, maybe it feels a little uncomfortable to think about man becoming God. So I think it's important to keep in mind that this is an ancient doctrine that is shared throughout, as we'll see, pretty much every stream of Christianity. What does it mean for man to become God? Well, first of all, it it does not mean that The distinction between creature and creator, the distinction between God as divine creator, you know, eternal being, and us as created, finite beings, it does not mean that that distinction is somehow blurred or erased. We don't want to think of some kind of equivalent to like Nirvana or, you know. I love that band. Being, <laughs> being losing our individuality as we're just sort of absorbed into, you know, some nebulous divine existence. That's not what we're talking about. Um, it's a Christian doctrine that comes straight out of the Bible, um, and especially in the East, it's pretty much the, like the basis of of their soteriology of, of their doctrines mm. of of sal- doctrine and theology of salvation and how they. Um, how they talk about salvation. So it's it's deification. We're being made like God. You know, think deity, God, you know, deification. It's a process by which we are made like God. Um, it's It's the manner in which God saves his elect by mercifully initiating them into his communion and his presence. So there's a lot of overlap with things that we already like to talk about, I would say. Union with Christ. Um, sanctification, being made, you know, conformed to Christ's image and being becoming more and more like Him. You know, being in the first place, being made in the image and likeness of God. You know, from Genesis one. Um, but it's a it's a a lot of ideas, like I said, that we're used to talking about, formula, or formulated or expressed in a way that maybe we're not super um, used to hearing, especially if we okay. don't come from an Orthodox background or, or have, you know, exposure or familiarity, um, with Eastern Orthodox theology and, and, and thought. So I think, I mean, this
0: sounds maybe, so you've kind of mentioned already that this is sort of a historic doctrine. It's one that finds its roots in, um, especially Eastern Orthodoxy and Eastern theology. Um, are you able to show that this does not Only rest there, but that this is expressed not only historically in an ancient context, but has um, gone through the millennium even till today?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So, a little disclaimer a lot of what I'm doing right now is I'm sort of scrolling through a 15 page paper I wrote on theosis in church history for a historical theology course I took in seminary. And um, what I was doing was tracing the history of deification, um, and taking a look at where it shows up in church history, um, and following it through, you know, the course of the centuries and seeing who said it, what it meant to them, that kind of thing. So mm. I'm going to fly through this because it's, it's not, you know, I guess, I mean, actually, through the power of the internet, if you're really curious, I guess I could send you um, a link to this paper. If you, you know,
0: we could even put it in the show notes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's probably a good idea. I mean, it's a 15 page seminary paper. It, you know, I, it's not super interesting in terms of like writing style. It's a little, you know, it's, it's a, it's a history paper where I trace the doctrine of deification through church history. So if you're really interested in diving into a little more detail, and, and you know i want to emphasize a little more detail it's a very sort of surface level like survey of of the different figures but if if you'd like to you know get some good sources in the footnotes to to pursue um is you know it's it it might be worth your time if it's at least scrolling through if you're interested but so that's kind of where i'm getting a lot of my um information from is i'm scrolling back through this paper and just picking out the highlights so um irenaeus of laoncs is um the the probably the earliest figure where we really see this doctrine showing up um and when we say early he lived about 130 to 200 um so his uh he was a disciple of a guy named polycarp who was a disciple of some guy named john who you know i don't know wrote some books that or like in the Bible or something. So he was really close. Mm. Irenaeus was really close to the apostles. And that's one of the things that's really significant about him is we have his writings and he was so early. Um, He he was literally just one generation removed from, from studying under the apostles. Um, So he, he wrote a, he wrote um, a big work called against heresies. And he talks about this idea called recapitulation, which is all about how, Christ's incarnation saves us, you know, the incarnation in the role that it plays in salvation, not just the crucifixion or not just the resurrection, but the incarnation itself. And the way that he goes about doing that is that in taking on human flesh, because, because the Virgin Mary is the Theotokos, because she is the God bearer, that means that. Christ was given true humanity because he, he God was truly born in the womb of a human woman. And so he took on true human flesh. And what that means is that that in that action, in that process of being incarnated, um, he Christ sanctified human flesh. He united, you know, fallen, sinful, you know, or, Sinful in the sense of you know under the effects of sin, um, corrupt, you know corruptible, dying humanity. He 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 undid what Adam did by kind of reversing the fall in his flesh. That's as far as I'm going to go into that. But it we see, we see what we what we see here is this this deification that the human flesh is being is being made into you know god's flesh and is being brought into union with god through the incarnation. So this is sort of where it starts. Um it's it's not explicit deification is not explicit in this process, but what we see is this idea of um human flesh being made into something divine while still being human, but being being made um you know, being made more than just sinful humanity, if that makes sense. Um, And that's, I think, a good starting point historically. Um, First of all, it's super early, like I said, which is significant because it's not some, like, innovation later in church history that someone just randomly came up with. Um, But also, it's very, very incarnational, and the incarnation plays a big role in it. And we'll see that going forward. Um, we've already mentioned Athanasius. Um, he was a very big deal fighting against the Arians and their heretical view that Jesus was not fully divine. Um, he also um, placed a big emphasis on the incarnation. He has a great little book. Uh, my edition is like 80 pages or something. It's not that long called On the Incarnation. Um and he sort of continues a lot of the themes that we see in Irenaeus um and this idea of um the, the, you know deification playing a role in our salvation um what's what's really kind of interesting is that um he's in his defense of the deity of Christ against the Arians who were teaching that Christ was was a created being he He uses deification as sort of like an argument that Christ was um, was divine because he says man, if joined to a creature, was not deified unless the son were truly God, nor was man brought into the father's presence unless he had been his natural and true word who had put on the body. So it's, it's almost like he's assuming like, oh, well, you know, we couldn't be deified if if Christ was a creature. So Christ couldn't have been a creature, which is just kind of interesting that even this early, it's 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 almost assumed because we see in the incarnation the union of 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 human with divine, um, and not just united but being glorified, transfigured, sanctified. Um, and then this continues through other significant church fathers, the Cappadocian church fathers. Basil of Caesarea, Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory Nazianzus um and we see in in you know my my boy Cyril of Alexandria um we see this this very with him it was very sacramental you know through the sacraments where we are being we are being brought closer and closer to union with Christ Christ is indwelling in us through the um through the sacraments and as we are becoming sanctified through the process of faith. Um, We see in Augustine, who is the most significant church father for Western Christianity, um, because he wrote in Latin, which was the language that theology was done in the West. Um, He, we see um, that he, you know, he, it's not sort of a deification is not really associated with Augustine quite as much as like somebody like Athanasius. Um, But, you know, here he says, let us rejoice and give thanks for we have been made not Christians, but we have been made Christ. Uh, He says in order to make gods of those who were merely human, one who was God made himself human. So we see this sort of classic, you know, that that sort of God become man, man become God, kind of formula. Augustine sort of rephrasing it in his own in his own way, um, and it's interesting, I think, to see just how widespread in the early church, uh, as we see with Augustine, East and West, that these ideas, as they were developing, they were building off each other, being informed, but but we see it in big, big names of, of early church, you know, the, the church fathers. It played a really big role in the way they talked about salvation. Um, and I think it's significant to note just how big a role it played and how widespread it was. Now, you may be thinking, well, who are the church fathers? I don't care. You should care. Maybe that's another episode. But if we move further through history, we see it pop up in Thomas Aquinas. Which, even if you're not a Roman Catholic, Thomas Aquinas is, you know, his influence is, is, you can't overstate how important Thomas Aquinas is for medieval theology, for Roman Catholicism to this day. Um, and because of that, indirectly, Reformation theology, because the Reformation came out of the medieval Western <laughs> Roman church. Um, He doesn't necessarily emphasize deification the way that some earlier, you know, Eastern fathers did, Um, but, you know, he does say in in his masterpiece to the Summa Theologica, he does say, it is as necessary that God alone should deify, bestowing a partaking of the divine nature by a participated likeness, as it is impossible that anything save fire should enkindle. So he's saying that God has to be the one to do it, of course, but he's also saying it's this natural thing, this bestowing of a partaking of the divine nature by a participated likeness. So we see it in Thomas Aquinas. um, And this is where we... I'm going to take a little bit of a a left turn into the Reformation. Um, We see it in Martin Luther. He really emphasizes union with Christ. Um, He emphasizes the Eucharist as as, as the sacrament of unity. Um, being incorporated together as Christians with each other, all, the, all Christians across all time, and with Christ. Um, he says that this fellowship is of such a nature that all the spiritual possessions of Christ and his saints are imparted and communicated to him who receives this sacrament. Again, all his sufferings and sins are communicated to them, and thus love engenders love and unites all. So this this communication, this participation that we see, um, and interesting—I'm no expert—but there's this this school of thought in Lutheran studies coming out of Finland um, that ha- you know in in the last I think couple maybe fifteen or twenty years has has emerged that. Um, argues that deification is is a really important element of Martin Luther's thought um which is just is just interesting um we see this this is the kicker for me if if even this guy has it it's got to be real right so for John Calvin just like Luther <gasps> union with Christ is really really key when we're talking about <laughs> salvation um mm-hmm. and you know union with Christ is a very you know it, that as a, as a phrase in, in, you know, reform theology, that's a pretty common phrase would mm-hmm. like, wouldn't you say like discussions of union with Christ is a pretty common theme. You know, I know it was, yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was at Moody and like <clears throat> Sistio with, with, I don't our think professors. people always
0: understand like the extent of what they mean when they say mm-hmm. it. Um, they, they talk about it a lot, but mm-hmm. they don't, at least when I've heard, had discussions, um, it seems kind of like surface level. So that's what I like about this conversation. So mm. I'm, I'm curious what, what you're about to say with, with as it pertains to John Calvin.
1: Yeah. So I would say, you know, deification in Calvin is implicit. It's not, it's not like he's going around, you know, there's, not, there's no chapter of the Institutes called theosis, the process of deification or whatever. Um, but what we see is a really strong emphasis on union with Christ. And that's where we see deification coming out. Because when you're united with Christ, you, you, you know, you participate in Christ, you're, you're in union with him. Um, there is where this process of being made more and more like Christ more and more into his image. Um, you know, that's where, that's where it, where it comes in. Um, and this is something that this is a bit of a tangent, but it's fascinating to me. Um, just connections between Calvin's thought and Eastern theology. Um, Calvin uses, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he talks about the church, the believers, um, ascending into heaven in the Lord's Supper. Um, he says that the believer communes with the body and blood of the ascended Lord in heaven and he acknowledges that that communion in heaven is a mystery. So he has this kind of like ascent language in in discussing um the Lord's Supper which is rem- remarkably similar to the orthodox priest Alexander Schmemann's description of what happens in the Eucharist. Um this ascent into heaven as part of the Eucharistic experience you know is not the same thing as the conversation of deification but i think it's really interesting how you know calvin's thought and and elements of orthodox thought overlap and i think that deification is is one of those was one of those things um this is where i started when i was doing this paper i started to get kind of blown away deification even pops up in the radical reformation so when i say radical reformation i'm talking about those groups like the anabaptists um where we get today the Mennonites, you know, are, are a group that comes from from them. Um the Amish, um, the 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 pieces, the the parts of the Reformation that were not uh, not I'm trying to think of how to like simply say it, you know, not like the English Reformation luther calvin zwingli but sort of the the more those who were going it's called one of the reasons it's called radical those who were going you know sort of further in the reformation so the 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 people in the reformation who were advocating for believers baptism the anabaptists that's going a lot further than where the 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 more traditional reformers wanted to go um so anyway even in the radical reformation which they were doing a lot of things like they were getting rid of a lot of traditional theological formulations and practices. Um, but even there we see these motifs um, and we see it again here in the Eucharist. There's a guy named Caspar Schwenkfeld um, and he says, I, be, I believe he was an Anabaptist uh, guy and, and he says in reference to communion Lord the Lord's Supper eating means partaking of the nature of Christ through true faith the spiritual food changes us into itself that is the divine nature so that we become partakers of it so you know it just the 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 one part of the Reformation I would expect to not hear something like deification it's there and I know that's I, I'm just picking very you know Isolated quotes, but I'm just trying to show a very broad brush. This shows up places. Um, there's. There's an argument that Jonathan Edwards had adoption of, of deification later. Um, there's similarities in, you know, like the Wesleyan and the holiness movements um, where you have like total. Um, total sanctification and that sort of, you know, moral renewal there's, there's an argument there that it's similar. Um, this idea of being fully made into the image of God, you know, by, by not sinning anymore. Um, even, and here's the, you know, I, I was surprised about John Calvin earlier. Here's where we get some real surprise. Even some Baptist theologians have participated in this sort of like interest in deification in recent times. Um, there are, there are plenty of, of, uh, Plenty of examples, but the point is, I think it's it's summed up really well by um Dr. Marcus Johnson. Um that my boy, Theosis has a rich history in the tradition of the classical, orthodox, and even evangelical Protestant Christian church. So hmm. super fast, you know, super flyover, isolated quotes. What I'm trying, like I said, I was trying to show the breadth of deification's presence in not only church history, but also different kinds of Christian traditions. So right. hopefully so, as sort of an introduction to that, I, I, I hope that I've sort of shown just the ways in which all kinds of different Christians throughout all different times of church history have had ways of talking about salvation that um, are ways of, of using deification motifs and language.
0: So now at this point, you know, we've heard we've heard it found in church history. We've heard it, you know, from 100 AD up until 2020 um, in some ways. So just because we've heard it throughout the history of the church doesn't necessarily mean that it's biblical. Um, so maybe now is a good time to transition to some biblical warrant for this doctrine. So where do we find this in scripture? Because we don't want to just like look at church history and be like, well, see, we have this clear and explicit, um, but we don't see it in scripture. Like, obviously we want to be careful with that, but we think that we do see it in scripture. So where is that most evident?
1: I think where it's most evident is, and and this, you know, this phrase has been coming up a lot, um, but, oh shoot, I don't remember the exact verse. I think it's first Peter, where we're um, told that we are made partakers of the divine nature um, i think that that is sort of the quintessential you know passage that expresses um, this idea to be made partakers of the divine nature and, and like we really got to think about what he's saying there he's not saying we get to witness the divine nature he's not saying we get to be protected it's by the Second divine Peter nature. One four. Oh, I gotta turn in my Christian card. <laughs> I can't <laughs> host a podcast anymore. Um, but anyway, he's he's talking about partaking, participating, joining into the divine nature. And what's really important for me is the word participation. Like I said, or, or partaking, and also the n- divine nature. He's not just saying we get to be in relationship with the divine, which is true, but he's saying we get to join into the very inner life of the Trinity because we're joining into the divine nature. So I think that that there is sort of, like I said, the quintessential scriptural expression of it. But like I said at the beginning, there's very, very big overlaps with language of justification and sanctification that we're more used to in more like Western Protestant circles, where we're talking about union with Christ. We're talking, Paul talks about being baptized into Christ's death. What does it mean to be through baptism united to Christ? It's not just a metaphor, you know, we're, we're actually united mystically into Christ's body, the church. Um, and we see Sancti- language of sanctification, where we're, where we're being conformed more and more to Christ's image. That's also in Romans. Um, and we see in in his discussion of the resurrection in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I believe, is where Paul talks about um, the corruptible putting on the incorruptible, you know, corruptible seed being turned into incorruptible. Um, and again, we just see that language of of corruptibility and death and decay being made into incorruptible life, eternal, which is which is to say our fallen, limited human selves, human bodies are being made into um, something divine. And again, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we somehow cease to be us or God ceases to be him. God ceases to be God or we cease to be us, but that we are made like God. We are made into something divine, which is hmm. glorified humanity. Is kind of how I would want to right. s- want to say it in a way that I think is a little more familiar, um, at least in theological so, terms. You know, right. um, when we look to heaven, we see we see the renewal of all things. We see new heavens and the new earth in the Book of Revelation. We see. Um, the tree of life that is for the healing of the nations. We see every tear being wiped away, no more pain or sorrow. That way of looking to the future of, of this glorification of, of mankind is deification is a way of speaking of that process. And then finally, also the transfiguration of Christ where he goes up on the mountain and, um, with, with the three, the three homies and he sees, um, um, they see him talking with Moses and Elijah and um, you know, he's like glowing and they're like falling down, like, like overwhelmed. That's, that's a moment where they're sort of given a, a glimpse into what is their destiny as, as those united to Christ to be fully glorified, fully made divine in the partaking of the divine nature of the Holy Trinity that we are by grace given the, the the ability to receive from Christ. It's not something that we, you know, do, or it's not something like magical or whatever. It, it's a, you know, what he is by nature, we be, get to become by grace, namely mm-hmm. divine, never dying, that kind of perfect, you know? Um, so I, I, well, I, th- I think it's helpful to say, yeah, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I, I think that it's, well, it's one of these things, it's like the Trinity. There's nowhere in the Bible. In, uh, that's what I was literally just gonna say. It, it's it, funny. <laughs> in in Greek where you're gonna find the word, you know, or you know, in Romans 27, Paul says, you know, here's my doctrine of Theosis. That doesn't happen. Um, right. but to say that it's not scriptural to say that we don't see Theosis in the New Testament, in and not just the New Testament, but um in scripture through um the teachings that we do have that are explicitly there and the the trajectory of of discipleship and christian life in terms of sanctification being made a sacrifice and and being conformed more and more to christ's image um is is how we we see deification just sprinkled all through through the scriptures um even right. if the word isn't there that's right that's a very different thing to say that the idea the teaching or the idea isn't there
0: well because god's revelation has always been progressive like even for moses for abraham doesn't matter like who we're talking about like god did not just well on one hand he did not just like fully reveal himself and he never has And I mean we, there's still an, he's an infinite god that we cannot exhaust um but a- as we read through scripture as we um you know as themes grow as themes build um we're, we're getting a fuller, more grand, robust picture of who we are as humans, who God is as, um, as creator, and how, like you've been saying this whole time, how we um, come to participate, how we come to have union with him, because those are not just like, I think you said earlier, they're not just metaphors for an idea, and I think one of the problems that maybe will help us clarify what we're saying, one of the problems that we have, I think in our you know, 21st century theology is a lot of salvation talk is just pretty much you're at church camp, you know, a speaker gives a little, little message about heaven and hell. Do you want to go to heaven and see grandma again? Of course you do. You raise your hand and suddenly you're, you know, in heaven or something. And I know that's like very simplistic. It's uh, maybe not entirely fair, but that is an example kind of of how salvation, Christianity, like that's, one way, even if it is a caricature, it is still a representation of how a lot of people think about these things of like what does it mean to go to heaven? What does it mean to um, have a relationship with Jesus? Um, we're trying to put like theological meat on those bones to make mm-hmm. this conversation more real, um more robust, more faithful, more biblical, um because yeah, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about, what it means to have a life of being conformed to the image of Christ. that That's Paul's language in Romans 8 that we, throughout our life, like the process of sanctification to like, to use, you know, maybe more familiar language, that process of sanctification is a process of being conformed more and more and more and more into the image of Christ. Obviously never perfectly in this life, but in the life to come, to be glorified, to be um, beholding him face to face. Like what, what is it? how does that process take place? How does it happen? Um, I guess this is the way in which we can talk about that. Um,
1: yeah. And you know, this is one conversation that speaks into that problem that we see a lot, um, in our con, not only in our context, but we do see it a lot in our context of like, you know, Bonhoeffer talks about like cheap grace. I think that's Bonhoeffer. Um, and we 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 see you know examples of like the as long as you can pray this prayer or like raise your hand during the altar call or whatever at at camp or on Sunday morning, once when you're eight, um, then you're done. you know, like you're you're saved, you're done. And a myriad other examples of like overly simplified. You know, sort of anemic views of what it means to be a disciple of Christ—that it that's just left completely toothless and weak um, by stripping, you know, stripping it of any serious, you know, call on anyone's life. Um, This this conversation is one conversation that really pushes back against that tendency that that to approach salvation, to approach Christianity in this overly like simplistic minimal sort of you know easy peasy kind of way by bringing us closer to the tradition of the church and as we can as we see you know not not every doctrine has such a widespread you know uh history of people from all i mean even like
0: the lord's supper right is that's like, there are a myriad of (laughs) expressions in church history. on Right.
1: And, and, you know, in, in this paper, when I was writing it, I was, I was expecting to basically, so the assignment, you know, was to trace a doctrine in church history. I was interested in theosis. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, So I was like, Oh, okay, I'll do that. I was expecting to basically start, you know, with like the early church fathers and then get to like, I don't know, a few hundred years in, And then basically just be like, and since then Eastern Orthodoxy has continued to talk about it and that's it. But instead (laughs) I ended up writing about every major branch of Christianity all the way up to the modern day. And I don't agree with everybody who I quoted in my paper. I don't agree with everything about the way that the East would formulate their doctrine of deification. I don't believe that it's the only way that the Bible teaches us about salvation, you know, like. Just, I don't know if disclaimer is the right word, but the point is there's more to the Christian life than cheap grace of, I, you know, to really alienate everybody, (laughs) I was baptized once when I was was a baby or, or older, so I'm good. It doesn't matter what I do. Oh, I prayed a prayer once when I was little, so I know that, you know, me and Jesus are cool. Um. oh, I prayed a prayer and sometimes I feel bad and I pray I pray more prayers to, of forgiveness. So I'm good. You know, I go to church once that a month. That is
0: not the Christian life. Right. That is, the, <laughs> we don't
1: see that in scripture. These things are not in the Christian life. And when you dive into the history of the church, when you dive into the just, you know, more books than any one person could ever hope to read because it's 2,000 years of global history, you see like I said this is one of those areas you see these areas where our weak spots our te- you know sins and our tendencies to sort of undercut the real meaning of discipleship and the gospel are challenged and one of those is hey if we're really on the, on this journey being made divine through this ongoing spiritual process how does that jive with oh I prayed a prayer once so i'm good it doesn't and what that right. does is that causes or it should you know it causes us to reexamine our own theology our own practice and hopefully bring it more in line with what we see in scripture which whether you want to call it deification or not we don't see cheap grace in scripture we see living sacrifice conformed to Christ's image sanctified the baptized narrow road into his sufferings hard and his death the narrow road it. exactly so hopefully you know i don't think we've ever really like named this explicitly but i'm trying to think of the episodes we've done i'm sure that this idea has come up before where when we dive into what scripture has to teach us about certain issues there are there are times where our own blind spots get challenged get kind of rubbed mm-hmm. you know like polished up or like our edges get smoothed out, whatever. Um, And that's not because everyone who's gone before us is perfect or everything that's ever been said outside of our own experience is perfectly right, but because when we go outside of ourselves, we learn new things, and that helps to point Mm -hmm. us back to Christ. You know, some things don't do that very well. Some things are wrong. Some things need to be challenged. But the point is that this conversation hopefully – was an example of that where we could explore something that's that's foreign to a lot of us um, be- but it's really not when we when we actually look at it right foreign in how we in our experience of how we talk about it but not foreign when we when we dive into oh this is what people have been saying all along because this is what the Bible says here here and here oh I see the connections um, how does that help me to reevaluate the way I approach salvation you know? Um, I know for me, this has drastically changed the way I look at my my spiritual walk because I'm not just in like this holding pattern where I, can, I wash my hands once, I'm good to go, I'm just waiting for heaven where I get to like feel good all the time and everything's happy. I hope
0: you're not washing your hands once, especially right now, <laughs> Lucas.
1: <laughs> but no, I'm in this process of being made, of struggling and killing sin and being made more and more into Christ's image, trans, being transfigured through participation in the divine nature on this faith journey between now and eternity, it's like, whoa, you know, that's a lot more significant than I prayed a prayer when I was seven, you know?
0: Right. I don't know. Well, I really like, I really like how Robert Letham. So um, we mentioned this dude a lot and mm-hmm. I think we've said it's because we both have his Sistheo and I have a couple other books by him, but he has specifically in his systematic theology, a chapter or at least like a sub chapter um, in the broader context of union with Christ. He talks about theosis and he says in becoming man, Christ received and assumed what is ours. And in doing so sanctified it or deified it, making it fit for fellowship with God. So again, taking our fallen humanity, Mm -hmm. sanctifying it or deifying it and making it fit for union with God. In turn, he gave humanity the grace of partaking in the divine nature It is the idea of union and communion, just as the deity and humanity in Christ remain what they are. They are in an unbreakable personal union. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for us as, as humans now as, as, as being human, but not being fully human or truly human, like Jesus is the only truly human to ever walk the earth. The only one who was actually what it means to be human um, we are being made into that image um and so I thought that was a really good summary a good summation i guess of, of sort of what we've been talking about here and um, I guess if you're looking for a really accessible you know conversation because even even when I was trying to do a little bit of like study and research on this there's there's not a lot um on this conversation that isn't really confusing mm. like I was reading through some articles and some blogs and some other stuff and I'm like man people I don't think really understand this but Robert Letham's um, it's like 10 pages in the you know 800 page book where he talks about this and he even gives like nine theses on theosis that sort of like are a good summary to you know I mean when we think about like union with Christ this is the most real union that we can have like when we think about that like marriage friendship um, you know being a son uh, you know today's Mother's Day if you had a mom, that's a one union, you know, you came from this woman, which is a very real and deep thing. Um, yet our union with Christ is the most real, most amazing union that we can have. And at the end of the day, that's what we're looking forward to. Like this life, um, journeying on this road um, as Christians, we are pilgrims along the way. Um, as we've said, becoming more like Christ and longing for that day where we will see him. And what what better time, you know, in the midst of, killer hornets and or murder hornets or whatever and COVID 19 and you know injustice in the news and you know all the crazy stuff going on in this world what greater hope is there than the hope of resurrection the hope of glorification the hope that one day we will see our savior face to face and be come truly and fully human Hmm. as we partake in that divine nature
1: amen yeah. I don't know. Anything else you want to add or do we want to... No, I, I that that's it. I think that is a really good way to sort of sum it up. And um, and yeah, his, his Latham's um, systematic theology is, as far as systematic theologies go, quite accessible. Um,
0: he has a chapter on aliens. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Have you read that one yet? I, I feel like I did because how can I not? But I can't... It's so weird to be an
0: assist Theo. Yeah,
1: I can't remember the details. So maybe I just like skimmed it
0: episode idea extraterrestrial interesting let (laughs) us know
1: if you how you feel about that (laughs) um yeah so i think i think that you know this is this is really in some ways a really complicated conversation but hopefully you know the main ideas are a little you know hopefully we were able to express ourselves in a way that wasn't too hard to grasp like what we're getting at so um i think that um, I was, you know, really grateful to be able to talk about this. I was, I've been excited to talk yeah. about this since we hatched the idea for this podcast, right so. in the beginning. I think, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so yeah, definitely, definitely fun. And and you know, let us know, you know, as always, everything, but just especially with this, there are so many places to go further into this topic because it is such a complex and deep conversation in in a lot of ways. But um, I, I think that we've sort of hit the, the main reasons why we think it's important.
0: Yeah. Well, if, if we're, if we got nothing else to say, we'll close with our customary prayer from this time, the Valley of Vision, and uh, then we'll close it out. So this is titled God All Sufficient. O Lord of grace, the world is before me this day, and I am weak and fearful, but I look to thee for strength. If I venture forth alone, I stumble and fall. But on the beloved's arms I am firm as the eternal hills. If left to the treachery of my heart, I shall shame thy name. But if enlightened, guided, and upheld by thy spirit, I shall bring thee glory. Be thou my arm to support, my strength to stand, my light to see, my feet to run, my shield to protect, my sword to repel, my sun to warm. To enrich me will not diminish thy fullness. All thy loving kindness is in thy son. I bring him to thee in the arms of faith. I urge his saving name as the one who died for me. I plead his blood to pay my debts of wrong. Accept his worthiness for my unworthiness, his uh, sinlessness for my transgressions, his purity for my uncleanness, his sincerity for my guile, his truth for my deceits, his meekness for my pride his constancy for my backslidings, his love for my enmity, his fullness for my emptiness, his faithfulness for my treachery, his obedience for my lawlessness, his glory for my shame, his devotedness for my waywardness, his holy life for my unchaste ways, his righteousness
1: for my dead works, his death for my life. Amen. Amen. Thank you for this conversation, Jens, and thank you listeners so much for following along with us and and listening to today's episode of the Doxology Podcast. As always, if you'd like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at Doxology Podcast. Send us an email at doxologypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Sign up for the weekly email newsletter. If you haven't already, stay up to date with any announcements. With uh,
0: You can do that in
1: the show notes and on the Instagram. Mm-hmm. And any um, uh, you know, up to date with, with new episodes that are coming out, as well as any big announcements. Um, and feel free on any of those platforms to give us feedback, questions, episode ideas, We love your support. We love you for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. All right. Thanks, guys. Later.